Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, the resurrection of Christ is something we can say is just a future hope, you know, that we hope uh, we're going to be raised. Uh, we can talk about the resurrection of Christ, where sometimes people say, well, does it really matter if Christ is bodily raised from the dead? Is that really all that essential? When we look at the Apostle Paul, he makes it very clear to, <coughs> clear to us that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we have no Christian life. Uh, there's no reason for us to go forward. There's no reason for us to live. There's no real power uh, present within us to truly even fight uh, against sin and conform to him. And so if we cannot grow in the resurrection of Christ, we're really left with, that, with the issue that, yes, the resurrection of Christ is essential. But why is the resurrection so essential, and how does this fundamentally impact our redemption today? Not just future, but even today. And is it really true that we cannot grow if Christ is not raised from the dead? And so we'll basically follow the order of the catechism, where we have a defeated death, uh, we have living new life, and then we have the revealed resurrection. And so let's begin with a defeated death. When we look at what the Apostle Paul and the Catechism is teaching us, that the Catechism wants us to understand the significance of Christ's death is that he has overcome death. Now, if you're familiar with any liberal works or any more liberal writings in terms of the fall of man, one of the criticisms they bring against the first Three chapters of Genesis, obviously, uh, the first 11 chapters, as we're familiar, have been uh, under suspicion, if you will. I do believe they're historical, but whatever the case. In terms of the first three chapters of Genesis, one of the concerns that people raise is they say, well, the Lord said that the day Adam and Eve eat of the tree, they will surely die. So there's a, a correlation. The day you do this is the day you die. And so if, if we look at this, criticism, if you will, of the text. And if we take death in terms of we cease to breathe or our heart stops, we can say, well, if we define death along those lines, then yes, there's, there's credibility. They're, they're right. However, how does the text tell us about death? Well, what does the text fundamentally communicate? Uh, because when we look deeper, we realize God's not the one who's lying in the context there. And again, it's a problem of us trying to impose a definition on the text rather than submitting to the text and saying, what is the text fundamentally teaching us about death? And when we look at this and we find the context of, of Genesis 3, and this, I think this is important in terms of the resurrection. But prior to this, we have in Genesis 2, verse 24, we have the creation of Adam and Eve, and there's a statement there, they were naked and unashamed. And so 
it's not the issue of clothing that's, that's the issue here. The, the reality is as God creates man and woman, they can stand in his presence. And again, the, the point of the nakedness is there's nothing to hide. They're standing before God, 100% vulnerable. God's peering right into their heart, seeing everything that's going on, their thought process, everything. And there's no shame. They, they don't feel scared to come into the Lord's presence. But then we have in Genesis 3, verse 7, there's sort of a repetition of this phrase, but now it's naked and ashamed. And so we, we, we find that there's really nothing that fundamentally changes in terms of if we're sort of outsiders in the Garden of Eden. We can say, well, they're created naked. They're standing before God naked. There was no problem back there in Genesis 2, but now all of a sudden there, there's a problem. So clearly something has changed. And what we find is that their eyes are opened, as the text tells us in Genesis 3, verse 7. They knew they were naked, and so what does man do? All of a sudden now they're sewing fig leaves together to cover themselves. Because now they're threatened by coming into the presence of God. And so right, right here, we're, we're starting to chip on the surface and say, wait a minute, something has changed. The moment they, eat of the, they ate of the tree, something radically changed in terms of their vulnerability before God. They're no longer vulnerable before the living God. And so we say, well, then, then what's changed? Well, we have the reality of what happens in a pre-fall situation. Adam and Eve do not care. Uh, their, their nakedness isn't some sort of a deviancy or some sort of a rebellion against God. Uh, there's nothing where they're threatened by the Lord looking at them, peering into their heart, seeing what's going on. But what we find after the fall, and this isn't just even in terms of man being redeemed. We have a situation with Isaiah when he's called into the presence of God. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. Isaiah himself, conscious he should not be in the presence of God, and he's clothed. So again, it's not an issue of clothing or covering, it's an issue of coming into the presence of God. What does Peter say when he's called by Christ? Lord, get away from me, for I am a sinful or wicked man. In other words, Peter going about his business, not doing anything that, that we could see about him as being deviant or, or rebellious against God explicitly, basically just going about his business, working. But yet when he comes into the presence of God, he's one who recognizes that he is someone who is wicked and should not be in the presence of Christ. And so this tells us that there's a fundamental change in the heart of man. It's not an issue of God's approved, as sometimes people will say, well, it's a problem they were naked. Well, that, that's not the problem. Because Genesis 2, they were, and that's not a problem. We have Isaiah, we have Peter going about their business, not doing anything explicitly deviant, and yet they react in the presence of God. So obviously there's something within man that's different. <clears throat> so what is that? Well, we have the change. You see, Satan tells them a half-truth. And he tells them in Genesis 3, verse 5, that their eyes will be opened. Now, when Satan gives this promise, because it is a promise that he gives them, they'll be like God, knowing good and evil, right? They'll be above God. They'll determine when they can eat of the tree or whatever tree they want to eat. They'll put God in his place. 
Well, the problem with that is Satan doesn't tell them the full truth. It is true their eye is opened. In fact, after they eat of it, their eyes are opened and then they realize they're ashamed and, and they're naked and they're exposed and vulnerable before God. That's when they're afraid. That's the moment of their death. They don't literally drop dead. But they're dead in the sense that their relationship before God is estranged. You have Satan then being a master marketer. So you find actually agriculture probably being the oldest occupation, marketing being the second oldest occupation. Because Satan's selling them on this tree, isn't he? Hey man, you eat of this tree, your life's going to be great. Everything that God's holding back from you, you're going to take from God and you're going to set the terms and you're going to be above God. Now if Satan said, listen, no matter what, when you come into the presence of God after eating of this tree, you're going to feel shame. You're going to understand your wickedness. You're not going to want his light shining in on you because you're going to realize how broken and vulnerable you are and you're not going to like it. Your relationships are not going to be whole like they were in the creation. You're going to experience a breaking down of your body and you're going to experience ultimate demise and experience death. Now, if he sold it that way, they'd be like, I don't think I want the tree. But Satan does not tell them the whole truth. And so when Satan promises them, and again, it's a false promise. Eat of this tree, you put God in his place. What happens? Well, the Lord still meets with Adam and Eve. They were promised they could put God in their place. The Lord calls out, searches for them. Adam and Eve are hiding. And as they're hiding, God doesn't give up. It's not that God just goes away and says, oh, well, you ate of the tree. I guess I can't judge you or deal with you or rebuke you. No, God finds them. Adam and Eve are still called to account. The tree doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything in the sense of claiming their power over God. In fact, now, what they used to look forward to most likely in meeting with God and communing with him is fundamentally and radically broken. Man does not want to be in the presence of God. Man wants to run away. Man wants to cover himself. Man doesn't find contentment being in the presence of God and doing the task that God set out for him. This is death no longer having that peace with the living Lord. And so when individuals come to you or potentially come to you and say, see, Genesis 1 through 3, it's not real. God said the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They didn't literally die. Say, okay, well, if you define death as not having a heartbeat or losing breath, then you're right. But if you define death as being estranged from God, not wanting to be in his presence, rebelling against him, being sinful, well then the moment they ate of the tree, that instantly happened. God did not lie. Satan is a liar. God warned them, eat of this tree, not going to go well for you. And so man then, sowing the fig leaves together, doesn't solve anything. Still vulnerable before God. God can still peer into their hearts. It's not like God's ignorant of what they have done or, or naive of this. It's not that he has to do a, lo- a large investigation. He knows what happened, but he wants Adam and Eve to confess it. And as they cover themselves with the fig leaves, thinking somehow this is going to hide them from God, it doesn't work. And so when, when we hear that, say, okay, so, so death is something severe. And when we understand that Christ took death in our place, This is profound. 
Because when we go back to that story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God did not lie to them. He, did, he told them, you eat of that tree, you're, you're going to have a, a very bad day. It's not going to be good. Uh, the day you eat of it, you're surely going to die, and you're going to experience what death looks like in terms of that. And they did. They didn't literally drop dead, but they experienced what death ultimately means. Not having the love, benevolence, mercy, love of the living God. They competed with each other. They blamed one another. They hid from the living God rather than rushing out to meet with their creator. And so when, when we hear that, one of the things that the fig leaves also teach us, we can't redeem ourselves. I mean, really, this, this is as absurd as if there's a sinking ship or you think of the Titanic hitting an iceberg and taking scotch tape over a gaping wound, and then you have the water still pouring in, but through that little strip, there's no water. Say, so see, I fixed it. It's like you didn't fix anything. And that's the absurdity of the fig leaves. So when the Lord slaughters the animal, and what a profound thing that he's doing there. A, he's giving them clothing fit for the common curse, but B, he's showing the blood sacrifice that's going to come and how only God's going to cover their sinfulness. Only God can do this and take away the true sanction of death. So when we understand what death really means and we understand Christ takes away death, this is where we turn to the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. Because notice how Paul begins here in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. So the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that our orientation right now. See, if we stop at the court scene with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, setting this in the context, we're, we're in a pretty pitiful place. There's no hope. There's no real assurance that we're going to have any victory, any growth, any... Uh, coming into the presence of God. I mean, we're always going to be vulnerable and shamed before him. But right here, the Apostle Paul has this wonderful declaration. If you've been raised with Christ, Christ being raised up assumes that Christ is one who has died. But he's been resurrected. And his resurrection is not something that's just a nice story. And it is a nice story. It's a wonderful story. It's a beautiful story. But the Apostle Paul is saying this isn't just a story. It's not just a narrative. It's not just a testimony. This resurrection of Christ changes everything. Then now we can come into the presence of God with a whole new orientation. We're not Adam and Eve trembling at the Garden of Eden, wondering when God's going to banish us to an instantaneous, immediate, eternal death or hell itself where we experience His punishment. This is saying right now this relationship has been restored, has been redeemed. Something has radically changed. We are those who have this orientation of focus that we are a heavenly people. Not all is lost. And when Paul writes this, he writes this in the context of what a church is going through. And it's a temptation we all have. We find the Pharisees have this temptation of this radical asceticism. And this gets into the issue of Christian liberty. But it's really this issue of if I deprive myself of enough things, I'm going to show God that I, I really love him. That if I harm my flesh and have a radical pulling away from the world, well, then I'm going to show that I really love God. Well, the Apostle Paul says all this is doing is actually just ironically indulging the flesh more. We're propping ourselves up. 
We're saying, look at the good things we've done. And so in, in reality, this depriving of ourselves isn't really bringing us closer to Christ. He's pointing out a fundamental problem that's going on in this church, most likely probably Judaizers, probably some sort of a, a pagan religion, maybe some sort of pre-Gnosticism coming into the church. Deprive yourself of things. You're going to have a higher spiritual life. And the Apostle Paul says this, this isn't really solving anything. When we go to verse 1, he wants us to know what solves it. This identification that we are raised with Christ. This is what fundamentally changes everything. We're not working out our salvation in our own strength. We're seeing ourselves as grounded in Christ. This is our anchor. This is our orientation. Uh, when we're going on in, in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand there is a spiritual power present within us from heaven itself that is conforming us, pulling us, prodding us to our Lord. That's why he goes on in verse 5, telling us then to put to death what is earthly, these uh, immoral desires. These are not things that we pursue. So it's not that Paul is saying, well, just pursue any sin and it's okay. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, he's laying out something very significant. You have been radically changed. You've moved from the domain of death to the domain of life. In Christ Jesus, he has overcome. So this brings us then to our next point. What about living out this new life? What does this mean? Well, the catechism wants us to understand that we are raised right now to life. Death of Christ makes payment for our sins, covers our sins, uh, makes it so we can draw near in the presence of God. Heavenly courts, as we've said, overturns what the earthly courts have done, which is a good way of putting it. I wish I thought of it, but it's not my way of thinking. It's something I read in Bovink some time ago. But it's a brilliant point, because you have what man wants to do to God to kill him, crucify him, put him on a cross, put an end to his life, bring about his demise. But you find that the earthly courts, much like Satan with Adam and Eve telling them that you eat of this tree, you'll basically put God in his place. We can't put God in his place. That's reality. We cannot remove God as judge. That's, that, that's just the reality of what Scripture's laying out to us. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we say, no matter what we think, we cannot remove God as judge. He's judge. That's it. And so that's the beauty of the resurrection. The raising of Christ from the dead is the heavenly court saying, no, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so the catechism wants us to understand that, that we have this new life, that we have truly overcome. It's not just that he takes death away, but the positive is that we have this new life in our Lord. And so as we hear this, we say, okay, well then what does the Apostle Paul exhort us to do? Well, he says, seek the things that are above. And so he's calling us to have this proper orientation through this life. Our priority is to pursue who Christ is. And so notice right here, it's not just focus on putting off sin. That, that comes later. But our fundamental focus, before we start thinking about putting off sin, is that we are those who are raised with Christ. 
This is our fundamental focus, our orientation. You are raised with Christ. You are a heavenly people. You have been redeemed. And so the Apostle Paul is saying that as we have this orientation, this has to always be pressed upon us. We have to meditate on this. Think about this reality. We are those who have moved from the court scene at Eden to not just the courtroom of heaven and borrowing from Murray, we move from the courtroom to the family room of God. So we have to seek the things that are above. Uh, this really echoes what we hear Christ says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And so when, when Paul says this, we may think, well, if we're just seeking the things above, is this just a license to sin? We just say, well, you know, I'm redeemed in Christ. I can live whatever way I want. The Apostle Paul is saying, if we really understand a spiritual nature. So again, you think about this church, uh, this Colossian church, most likely facing some sort of a pre-Gnostic. Maybe some Judaizers have snuck in here. But this notion that if you find a true spiritual life, if you discover this life, then you will experience true exponential growth and you'll become basically a superhuman. And Paul's saying, listen, I'm not denying a spiritual aspect of the Christian life. In fact, the Christian life is a spiritual life. It's a life in the Spirit. So as the Spirit has raised you up with Christ, seek and have your orientation in Christ. And he exhorts us then to seek the things above where Christ is seated. So again, he, he wants us to truly contemplate what does it mean that Christ is on the right hand of God? Well, this means he's overcome, he's victorious, uh, he's sitting in heaven as one who is triumphant. And so when we say, well, I still see sin, I still see issues in this age, the Apostle Paul is saying, understand, you are seated with Christ. This is where you are right now. And so in terms of, of this process and what's going on, we've talked about metamorphosis where we're moving and transforming progressively to the new age. As Paul is exhorting us to have our orientation on the heavenly reality, verse 2 goes on, set your minds. In other words, set your consciousness on the things that are above. So it's not ignore sin, but instead of focusing just on sin, we're focusing right on who am I? I am a redeemed individual in Christ Jesus. I have to consciously set my mind on this reality. What does that tell us about our minds? We're prone to wander. We're prone to go into different things. We're prone to drift, as Hebrews says. We're prone to trust in things other than God to find contentment in life. But he's saying, set your mind on the things above. Now we say, well, that sounds obvious then why do we keep drifting from it? And this is why Paul continues to remind us, we are a heavenly people. Now, when you uh, think about most things that we do in terms of our life, uh, normally when we focus on objects, for instance, I know mountain biking, motorcycling was another thing where I learned this, that where you put your focus is where you end up. So normally, if you look at a tree, and you say, I don't want to hit the tree, I don't want to hit the tree, I don't want to hit the tree. Well, if you're focused on the tree, you're going to hit the tree. So you look away, look where you want to go. And normally this ends well for you. And so when your mind doesn't always pay attention, uh, it doesn't always end so well for you. 
And this is a reminder here that the Apostle Paul is saying. When we stumble, when we struggle, when we have our, our, the midst of what we're going through, where do we stop and put our minds? The first place we want to put our minds, which is not where we normally want to put it, you are raised up with Christ Jesus. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. This is the reality of who you are right now. And as you're in Christ Jesus, set your mind and priorities on the things of Christ. A wise thing to do in the midst of it is pray. Call out to your God. I am in, the, in, in your presence. You are my God. I am your redeemed. And as I am your redeemed, how do I, I go about this? How do I get through this? Move me through this. Move me beyond this. Transform my mindset. Now, there's something else in the text that's rather encouraging when we hear this. That right now, as we'll pick up more in the next point, but our lives are hidden with Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that as we go through life, there's this force field that's kind of like projecting around us and, and we can see it. But that's sort of the, the point of the text. That is telling us that, that there is a, a guarding that's going on. Now, Somebody who's not a Christian may look at us, like if you put a Christian and non-Christian in the same place, you're not going to see the force field around the Christian and the non-force field around the non-Christian. But what Paul's assuring us is that there really is a spiritual presence within us that's protecting us and guarding us. We are hidden with Christ. So as Christ, we know that he's victorious on the right hand of God. We don't necessarily see him seated next to God, but we believe it. I, I hope we believe that and believe that he's overcome and he's been raised from the dead. And as he's overcome, we have to see our lives as concealed in him, that he's holding us, he's guarding us, he's protecting us. And so as, as we're stepping forward, we're setting our minds on heavenly things, we can understand now how the Apostle Paul goes on. And he's saying, now therefore, this is why we don't want to pursue these sins. These sins are, are not beneficial. These sins are not good for us. These sins are, are not going to help us in terms of pursuing a, a contented life in the Lord. You know, we, we fall into these things and we heed the temptation of Satan. Why? Because Satan gives us the half-truth. Oh, this will give you joy. Oh, this will be so much fun. Oh, this will bring you whatever you think is going to bring you. But the reality is the only way we find contentment and joy in this age is continuing to refocus and reorient who we are. We are a people who have been raised in Christ Jesus. Our lives are hidden in our victorious Lord. We have to consciously remind ourselves of this reality and press forward in the midst of our struggle with this assurance. That's what the Apostle Paul is assuring us. And so we say, okay, we understand the reality of this, that, that we're hidden, we're concealed in Christ. He's guarding us, he's holding us. So what about the end of it? Is this just, you know, the message of Christianity is, hey man, just go through life, suffer a bunch, and then hopefully at the end it all works out. Well, that's not the message either. So the resurrection of Christ impacts us today and it gives us the future hope and the future motivation because there is the reality of this resurrection that he will be revealed. Uh, the catechism reminds us that, 
as we go about our lives, we know that even as we're not in the full glory of Christ, that our Lord hasn't abandoned us. You know, Christ is leading us. He's shepherding us. You know, Psalm 23, you think about that. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't go around it. There's no promise of an easy life there. But the assurance is we go through that valley. And God is shepherding us through that valley. We may doubt it. We may tremble. We may be afraid. But the promise is our Lord is leading us through that valley. And where is he leading us? To the green pastures. This is a promise of what Paul is laying out in these four verses. He's not giving a message of, well, just struggled through this age and somehow it's going to work out. Hopefully it works out. I don't know. I think so. But the Apostle Paul says, no, as Christ is seated in heaven, as your life is hidden with Christ, understand Christ will appear. So we, we have this understanding of hiddenness. Our lives are hidden in Christ. Christ is hidden in heaven. Not in the sense that he's not real, but in a sense that he's allowing his purpose to unravel and to unfold for whatever reason. He's allowing Satan to engage in his battle and in his warfare. He's waiting for his people to enter into history and, and, and to come and be called and to um, take hold of Christ by faith. And so the Lord's working all these things out in his timing. And we don't understand why this is all happening. And the Apostle Paul doesn't let us in on all that information. And at the end of the day, the Christian life, fundamentally, what does it mean? Well, if we seek first the kingdom of God, we're seeking to be better and more consistent and more faithful disciples, right? We're called of Christ. We take the yoke of Christ upon us. We're called to be his disciples. And so when the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ will be revealed who is our life. He appears. And so it's not denying that Christ is not physically the right hand of God and whatever that means and however that works now. What he's telling us is there's going to be a moment where the world, you know, as we see a precedent in Noah's Ark, oh, look at that crazy guy building this ship and building the ark. We were just reading through that as a family, you know. You're building this great big boat in front of your house and there's not water nearby, but yet you're building this great boat and everyone's going, oh, what a fool. What, what's this guy doing, you know? What, what's going on with him? All of a sudden the rain comes, right? That's sort of the precedent that's going on here. Oh, these Christians looking for this Christ guy to come again. Who are they? What are they doing? Why, why are they talking about this stuff? Well, the Apostle Paul says, listen, Christ will come again. You will see him. Your life is not going to be disappointed as you are joined to Christ. You will experience the ultimate vindication. Because this life that is ours is that we are those who will appear with him in glory. Think about that implication when Paul lays this out more in 1 Corinthians 15. That even if we're alive at the coming of Christ, we will not miss out in the resurrection. We will be glorified. And, and what a wonderful blessing that would be. I mean, think about it. You go from this age to all of a sudden a glorified state and you never have to pass through death. I mean, that, that would be a wonderful privilege if the Lord um, willed to do that or for whoever he wills to do that for. What a wonderful blessing. And that's the assurance. Not a single individual be forgotten or left behind. And so the Apostle Paul, in terms of how he motivates us, we can see James 
being sort of more just pushing us along. Sort of Hebrews kind of does the same thing of, come on, just keep going, keep following. But for the Apostle Paul, it's listen. Let's look at the big picture. Here's a big picture. You have been raised up with Christ Jesus. And so Satan's going to tell you that dying to sin is just the worst thing ever because sin is so much fun. Apostle Paul's saying it's not fun. That's deception. It doesn't build you up. It doesn't help you. It's not something that's going to provide something of a lasting benefit. And your life is hidden with Christ. Think about Christ. Meditate on that reality. Meditate on the goodness of heaven. Think about the goodness of your God. Think about the power that is present within you. Let your mind go to those places. And you'll start seeing that the sin that seems so tempting isn't so tempting. It's not so good. And you understand more and more of where you need to conform your Lord, to your Lord as you seek Him. And Paul says, and at the end of the day, think about where this leads you. It leads you to the ultimate resurrection. And so for Paul, he has a very sort of quick snapshot of this age of just, you're hidden with Christ, you're going to glory. Keep your mind focused on that. And then he goes on and gives us the exhortations. Yes, we put these things to death. These are not things we want to pursue. You're set apart in Christ and you have new life. Believe it, live out of it, and seek to honor your God. And when you think about how Paul picks up with this reality, if you have been raised with Christ, move beyond the court scene of Eden. That's not where you see yourself. You see yourself as one who's in the family room of God, coming before him, recognizing your sin, desiring to live in conformity to him, knowing that whatever has happened, whatever has transpired, he is sovereign enough, gracious enough, to see you through whatever's going on. And he is walking with us in the midst of it. That's the beauty, very briefly, of this union with Christ. That Christ is with us, in us, and we are in Christ. So we can think God is indifferent, God is in heaven, God doesn't care. But as Paul covers this in Romans 8, he makes it very clear, the Spirit even intercedes, cries out, prays on our behalf. And so continues to bring up our fundamental desires, even when we feel too broken, too weak, and too vulnerable, maybe, to pray before the Lord. Our God is still interceding on our, be <clears throat> interceding on our behalf and leading us to glory. And so then, where he began with the question, does the resurrection of Christ, is it really that essential? Is it really that important? Well, the reality is if Christ is not raised from the dead, we have no hope. We have no power to overcome sin. We have no redemption. We have no way of coming before the throne of God. It is not a throne of grace. It is a throne of disappointment. It is a throne of failure. And so the bodily resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential. And praise be to God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But the resurrection of Christ, while it guarantees our future, also guarantees and empowers us right now. Because as we are joined to Christ, that resurrection power that reached down into the pit of hell is a very power that is within us. 
The power that has overcome hell itself is a power that is at work within us. Let us then heed the Apostle Paul's exhortations in these few verses. Let us set our minds on the heavenly things. Let us contemplate the goodness of God. Let us desire to discern and seek what it means to be better and more faithful disciples unto him. Not to add to Christ's work. That's, that's not what Paul's teaching here. But to do it so that we bring glory to our Lord and Savior. So that we truly enjoy and see his goodness more and more. As we conform to his will, sojourning through this age, longing for the age to come that we taste in his spirit. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.